Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Intro Man. It is the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Brendan here with Mark. It is the weekend in May the 24th. And um, what a week it's been, Mark. Um, as I am posting this podcast, I will be on a big jet airplane, a big plane on the way to Shanghai. So, um, Hopefully I've landed um, or about to land or am going to land or will land very soon, <laughs> depending on when, when you listen to it. And I'm off there as um, I sort of hinted to give a seminar, a little um, continuing education to some um, Chinese vets in Shanghai. And um, Annie very kindly said to one of her friends, um, she was chatting to them today, saying that Brendan's going to China to um, teach and um, like he, he's fluent in, in Mandarin and Cantonese. Um, and they almost believed her, Mark. Um, I, think, um, I think what is going to happen is I will have a, a person standing beside me interpreting um, my poor jokes and um, I'm just hoping that they'll go across um, reasonably well and we did speak about it about this uh, exact subject I did, I did, didn't we? I did, I did say off air that um, one of the great things I enjoy about listening to you when we are at conferences and you're doing your presentations and one of the things that fixes your rather important points in my mind is your dry wit and i hope it does translate very well for you while you're over there um yes i'm well, sure I've, that i think i will take a slightly different tack this time and um, mainly stick to the actual information that i need to provide to them <laughs> and, rather than um some silly dad jokes um although dad jokes are probably universal so we'll, we will see mark we will see i've thrown in a couple of interesting Interesting pictures, so and I and I um I'm not, which have nothing to do with my presentation. So I still haven't decided what I'm going to say when those slides pop up on the screen, Mark. So it could get quite interesting. So yeah, there we go. So that's that's what I've been up to today, getting ready for that for the trip and um starting the packing. And you shouldn't leave it there, Brendan. Um, like you are going to talk. What sort of topics are you going to talk on? Well, it's it's for a it's a, 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 a continuing education company that's based in Europe, I think, but they have a, a, a Chinese branch. And there's three um, three speakers there. I'm, I've been fortunate enough to get invited, and the other two are um, Sid from the Czech Republic, who will be doing reptiles. I'll, I'll be doing the small mammals, and Bob Donnelly from another Australian will be doing birds. And um, basically, it's it's anesthesia and surgery of each um, group. Um, or, and also um, endoscopy. So pretty broad, but um, in my section, I'll sort of concentrate on the the variety of things you can do with endoscopy in small mammals and just um, some hints and tips and tricks um, for um, equipment and um, the fact that you don't need a lot of stuff 
to get going with endoscopy, you don't have to buy, you know, the gold standard Storts equipment and 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 buy um, um, spend twenty or thirty thousand um, dollars front up. Um, um, you can start small and slowly grow, and that's sort of what I've done with my my equipment. And I've got a bit of a mix of of gear, including the Storts equipment, Mark. And I know you've got mainly Storts equipment, I think. Um, yeah, so I talk a little bit about that um, with the anesthesia and surgery, just some some ideas and my thoughts about um, safely anesthetizing and, and basic surgical procedures that we commonly see in some of the small mammals. Um, so the presentations or lectures are in the morning. It runs from a Monday to Friday, and then in the afternoon is the, the lab or the wet lab sessions, the practical sessions where we'll be doing doing the um, surgery and anesthesia of the birds and the small mammals and the, and the reptiles. So I'm really looking forward to it. It'll be fun. It will be fun. And, geez, that team, um, Dr. Kanotic and um, Dr. Donnelly and you, that would be, uh, wow, just well, top. Well, I try, I, try and, I, try, I try and even it out a little bit with, um, you know, um, we have the two, two of the top, um, top um, presenters in the world and then you have me. Um, with my slides that I have, I have no idea what I'm going to talk about. So it will be, um, it will be interesting. And then I'm spending a few extra days. Well, actually, a little bit more than a few extra days, isn't it? I think it's about a week or ten days after that. Um, um, a few extra days in Shanghai and um, a, a town or a city not far from Shanghai. And then I fly to Beijing for a few days in. Beijing and surrounds, including the Great Wall, and um, hoping to take lots of pictures, Mark. And as I briefly spoke off air before we started, um, I want to do a little bit of video as well because I always forget to take video um, when I'm out and about. I take lots of pics, but I think um, taking a couple of um, cheeky video um, um, little grabs is always good um, to, to have a bit of a laugh. Um, so, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So that's what I'm planning over the next two or three weeks. And, and the good good news for our listeners is, Mark, that we have um, pre-recorded a couple of fantastic episodes and the one after this episode is an absolute cracker. Um, it's an interview with um, an exotics vet here in Australia that, um, you know, it was a fantastic interview and, and um, you know, um, stay tuned and, and listen to that one. It's a, it's a great episode. And the, the one after that's another top 10 tips and tricks and um, it's another fantastic one. So, yeah, you won't miss your weekly fix of the vet gurus, will they, Mark? Not at all. Not at all. What have you been up to? Um, as we discussed off uh, off air, I had a. Uh, it's a little bit of a meeting phase for me. I've got. Um, I had the uh, AVBC uh, annual face to face, the annual general meeting, and their workshop in Canberra. Canberra was beautiful, by the way. It, the only bad thing about um, these meetings, and sometimes I have this problem with conferences, and so I'm glad you've got a few extra days each side. Is what I call the McDonald's effect of. Um, of meetings that you could be anywhere in the world and you're just in a meeting room and you don't get the joy or pleasure of um, exploring the wonderful city that you're in. And that was exactly the the way I felt about Canberra. I could see how um, glorious and sunny and um, uh, gorgeous the light was and I was itching to fire the camera off, but uh, I had to spend the time in the meetings. I've come back to Newcastle to work today, but then 
I've got to go to Sydney for Monday and Tuesday, another set of meetings for the um, Vet Practitioners Board in New South Wales. So, geez, Brendan, it's a lot of um, sitting down reading and listening and, and uh, um, yeah, not a lot of animal stuff just at the moment. Yeah, well, you must be racking up a few flyer points um, <laughs> with your trips there. So, yeah. we fl- I flew to Canberra in a um, twin-engine 22-seater Otter from Pelican Air and um, and crikey's which the, is um, most appropriate for you isn't it Pelican <laughs> Air yes. exactly um, and so yeah it was a um, and the really cool thing was um, a few weeks ago when we were down at uh, uh, we did a bit of a, a helicopter flight when we were down over the 12 Apostles people might remember me bragging about that walk and um, and getting onto the helicopter for the tourist flight over the the apostles was um very similar to getting on the at uh, Canberra airport there was you know 18 or 19 of us we were all herded into a little group and our um pilot the pilot looked like he was 16 i swear brendan um, <laughs> and he wandered out with us to the plane and and uh, installed us pretty much individually um strapped us in with not much room to move and um and we were off and uh similarly at the other end it had none of the trappings of a you know major airline um it was done much more low-key and uh uh, person to person so uh, uh, yes good well good good to get some frequent flyer points with pelican air um did was pelican air a turbo prop type engine with the the propeller as yes it was they're pretty noisy aren't they i mean you know it's like the you know, I, I thought you were going to say you flew in a Fokker. Um, so, you know, because the, there's a lot of Fokker friendships around, or perhaps not um, many more, many these days. Um, and I think a very common one that's flown worldwide is the Embraer, um, which is a sort of medium sort of size jet um, that I've flown a bit in the States when I've been over there as well. But And and this is complete, well, it's almost completely off track. You know how I tend to go on a little tangent. It reminds me, Mark, of my, it reminds me of my vasectomy when you of spoke about all of that. Because the, the, the doctor that did my vasectomy, he, he, um, he was about 75 or 80 not out when when he did my vasectomy and uh, his hands were shaking a little bit when I met him um, before the actual day of the vasectomy. Um, and he, he looked like somebody out of World War One, and he had the, the, the big um, waxed moustache, um, literally the curly moustache. And the reason why it made me think of this is he flew a... a um, Sop with Camel um, plane that he actually owned one of those. Which, for those of you who know know what a Sop with Camel looked like, it's a, it's you know one of these ancient sort of um, planes that um, has a bit of a um, bit of a reputation, doesn't it? It's one of those classic planes um, from from the well, the Dark Ages, what we say these <laughs> I think days. They but out um, of tissue paper, Brendan. Yeah, um, so, um, but I still went through with the vasectomy with him, even though he he, he spent the first um, meeting with him talking about his, his flights. Um, and then when once he realised, um, this is my um, a brief bit about my vasectomy story, isn't it? Um, once he um, heard that I was a veterinarian, he, um, he then started to um, 
talk about how he, he loves doing vasectomies and he practised on cow balls and um, sheep balls and he, he used to go to the abattoir and um, buy, you know, 20, 50, 100 um, of the um, of the bits um, to practice his vasectomies. Um, so, yeah, there's a, well, there's a bit of While a- you shot off at that tangent, I, I've got to take it one step further and this is a measure <laughs> of, um, of how old I am. This is uh, – um, there's little events in your life which um, just remind you that you're not quite as young as you once were. And the one vasectomy-related – Incident that um, that does that for me is um, is Renwick, my son, is in second year medicine, and um, and he came. They have to do at Newcastle University. They go and spend some time in various rotations, much like uh, fourth and fifth year veterinary sites, or whichever depends which university you're at. But those later years, anyway, yes. he um, he he. Uh, probably with the same trembling hand as your sop with camel pilot um he his first piece of surgery was to uh to um section the vas of a uh, well relatively brave man i would have thought um and uh and that made me feel when you listen to your son tell you the story of their first surgery and it's a vasectomy that makes you yes. feel old yes yes well hopefully it all went well and there's there's um there isn't a um a birth, an upcoming birth soon for that person. Yeah, see if everything went well. Well, I'll, I'll tell you the rest of um, the rest of my vasectomy story okay. um, at some other stage. Mark, it's quite. Oh, well, we can tell. Well, we can tell it on air, but maybe, maybe we'll we'll leave that hang in for another time um, because it was quite quite an interesting um, an interesting process, Mark. And um, yeah, he was quite quirky. This. Um, this vasectomy um, doctor. So yes, um, we'll leave that for another time. Yeah, because I want to talk about. Um, I'm getting a bit angry, Mark, and I haven't been angry for a while. You have not been angry for quite a so while. It's perhaps a good time for me to be going on a holiday because I'm a little bit angry about um, all the chatuses, Mark, that have been taken. Um, and this is my first news story, um, and it's about the rare antelopes that are being killed to make chatouches. And I don't know whether you knew what a chatouche was, Mark, but it's... I did not. Yeah, well, it's a it's it's a scarf, basically. It's a fancy scarf made from an antelope that is critically endangered. And these scarves, Mark, um, gee, they, they're worth up to $20,000. $20, and um, guess what? The people who love the chatouches are often, um, where, where they end up um, sort of confiscating them, uh, are people that are heading across the Switzerland, Switzerland Italy border market. And they're often people that are heading off, you know, to Milan with their Gucci and Louis Vuitton luggage, etc. And um, yeah, it's just, it's just a pretty sad story. It was one that was on one of my favourite sites, as I always mention, that not, not Mother Nature National at this time, but no, National Geographic, Mark. And um, they come from the short, warm fleece, fleece of the rare Tibetan antelope, which is found mainly or almost exclusively, exclusively in uh, an, a region of Tibet on the Tibetan plateau. And it takes about four animals, according to this report, to provide enough wool for just one chatouche scarf or shawl. And um, they have a bit of a chart further down in this article, Mark. I don't know whether you've seen it that talks about how many 
shawls that have been seized in Switzerland, and I'm sure there's a hell of a lot more than the ones that um, that they've detected um, over the years. In, in 2010, they they confiscated 25 of the shawls. Um, in 2018, 41. It did peak at around about 72 in 2015. And they um, estimated how many of the Tibetan antelopes that were killed to produce the shawls. And for 2018, last year, it was around about 164 of the animals. And, Jeez. Uh, yeah, it's pretty sad because I think that they've seen um, between 2015 and 18, customs officers seized the equivalent of more than 800 Tibetan antelopes from the necks or luggage of travellers, travellers primarily, primarily primarily from Italy, Germany, the United Kingdom and the Middle East and they have pretty fancy patterns and, you know, I think they're a, yeah, they're a status symbol, um, obviously, um, these these shawls. And the interesting um, thing was that um, they, they can't, they can't be, they're not domesticated at all and so the only way for them to obtain the fibre, the wool, is to kill the animals and strip it from their still warm carcasses. Yeah, and it's just, oh, yeah, it made me a little bit or a lot angry, Mark. And, you know, um, I don't think by the look of it, there's, they haven't really come to any conclusions about possible ways to, to stop um, this trade. And there's a couple of um, pictures, depressing pictures there, yeah. a case yeah. of the confiscated chatuses there in a basement room in Bern that serves as a warehouse um, for illegal wildlife products that have been confiscated there. So, yeah, and Switzerland tends to be the, the hot spot for Chateuse's mark, um, and I think a lot of it is because they're often smuggled across or through or over um, or to a tiny airport a few miles from the posh ski resort town of St. Moritz. So that's my first news story, Mark. Oh, and, um, a bit depressing and a bit angry. Yeah. Before we were on air, I told you I was a bit down, and and that just has not um, raised my spirits at all. And and my first story is going to um, uh, like just not help anymore. Um, I, I earlier this year, as uh, uh, as a representative of um, of the veterinary community and the New South Wales Veterinary Board, I attended Taronga Zoo um, to partake in a workshop um, that was part of um, the New South Wales government's koala strategy. Um, and it's interesting that uh, the, my second, the news story I've got talks more generally about koalas in Australia, but um, it's, a, um, it, it's a depressing story too. The, um, the story in question tells uh, tells us that the Australian Koala Foundation now believes that there are fewer than 80,000 free-living koalas in Australia, and, and that number and the distribution of the various populations effectively makes the uh, species functionally extinct in the wild. Now, what functionally extinct means is, uh, is uh, I'm a bit, I like to understand what these things mean, and um and uh, and particularly because um, you can still see uh, koalas without too much effort in the wild, but the problem is that um, there's a threshold number that uh, the wild populations need um, to affect their role in the ecosystem. And once that uh, population drifts below a certain number, 
then they no longer have that effect on the wild ecosystems and they reach a point where inbreeding and uh, um, and other effects of small population, the absence of, uh, of um, habitat means that it's almost certain that the population will uh, persist in a catastrophic decline um, and go from functionally extinct to practically extinct. Um, and it was interesting that at the uh, the whole uh, New South Wales koala strategy was triggered by the New South Wales Chief Scientist report about four years ago, three or four years ago, which um, which stated that the current population of koalas in a, in New South Wales, which is about twenty five thousand, I believe, although that. Uh, that number has been contested by a number of um, different authorities, but um, the chief scientist suggested it would only be 10 to 15 years and um, that uh, uh, koalas in New South Wales would actually be extinct, not just functionally extinct, that the disjoint nature of the populations and the, uh, the nature of the threats they face, cars and dogs and uh, diseases, um, uh, that they're... The outlook is not good, Brendan. So I think... Um, well, yeah, the interesting... I just find it fascinating that they're saying that koalas are potentially functionally extinct when there is no more than 80,000, and there's a hell of a lot of species that yes. haven't quite got that number, Mark. Um, so there's there must be a lot of functionally extinct species out there, and yet they... The um, people who try to save the species would would um, would not be thrown in the towel when there's when there's um, when there's less than a hundred of some of the species, or, or a few hundred, or maybe a thousand, let alone eighty thousand. So that's the thing that I found I think, curious um, with this report. Well, I think uh, the 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 in a scientific sense, the term functionally extinct refers to their relationship. You know the, how they. The effect they have on the environment, and so you know how many trees they eat, and how uh, how they they contribute to, um, as prey items to other predators or whatever. And once they've reached this amount, their effect on the environment is um, is no more. They're functionally not there. Um, so yes, it's a it's a bit of a scientific uh, jargon, but um, it does point to the fact that we've hit a critical point and it's likely well there's nothing in the near future that's likely to uh to change the trajectory of the population of these animals yes and it's not surprising that they also mention that the obvious concern is primarily habitat loss with them and i i remember probably um well many years ago now i was involved with a population control of, of some of a wild population of koalas that were were doing the koala thing and they were eating the, eating themselves out of their home and um, they were starving and they were, it was an isolated pocket of koalas in a in a region of Victoria and, and we went out there to to cull some of them and, and to um, um, control the population by, by vasectomising the, the males as well at that stage before we had sort of um, decent um, hormonal sort of implants, etc. Um, and it was a bit sad because we were, you know, you could see them that they were they were breeding like koalas and yet there was no food for them and they were, they were really suffering there. So, um, yeah, so habitat destruction as always is always a... Um, 
a major factor, if not the major factor, as many, many species decline, Mark. Yeah, that is a very depressing story, Mark. Thank you very much. Well, <laughs> We're rolling um, along with that. Yeah, rolling around with it. Well, my ones, well, I've, since I'm on um, chatooses, I'm, I'm, I'm going to talk about um, making sweaters out of dog hair instead, Mark. I think that's what people should be doing instead of killing off those Tibetan antelopes. Um, they should be um, not skinning their dogs, but weaving a pullover out of their hair from their dog, Mark. And um, this story is from the Mother Nature Network, our other very popular um, source of um information and sometimes disinformation i suppose and it's just talking a little bit about people who who knit um sweaters or jumpers or whatever you want to call them out of their own dog's hair and even have a there's a bit of an industry out there isn't there mark when you read through there this definitely is brendan and, oh well um, we don't even need to go through this story because we at the um uh, there's a very very big um uh uh, dog f- show facility here in Newcastle at Hillsborough. Um, uh, many of the dog clubs have regular shows there, and there is a, um, a wonderful woman who sets up her uh, spinning wheel and collects bags from people as they come in and gives them um, uh, balls of wool as they leave um, so they can knit their own jumpers. Um, and this story just tells me that 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 Newcastle is not the only crazy place in the world where that happens. Yes, and they did talk about, um, I'm just trying to read through the different breeds that they're recommending. They're saying perhaps a Jack Russell Terrier is not the best dog to get to be able to, <laughs> to produce a, um, a sweater or a jumper off them. Um, but yeah, um, it's... Um, yeah, not all dog hair is the same, um, obviously. And th- there we go. The cream of the crop is the Samoid they're talking about, which um, which I suppose makes sense there. So, um, yeah, so um, knitting knitting things from dog's hair, it's, um, you know, it's a new take on the hair of the dog, isn't it, Mark? There's <laughs> a joke for the day. And I, I don't think I'll use that one when I head off to um, Shanghai because I, um, who knows, they may... Um, well, I may be eating. Um, I may be eating. I may be eating dog. You'll eat. Um, who knows? Yes, that's right. That's right. So <laughs> there you go. That's a bit of an uplifting story there. And um, um, so, uh, hello to um, one of my nurses whose name shall not be um, not be um, not be spoken. Um, Laura, who um, collects all sorts of things, and, and she runs a charity. Mark, I think you probably saw on our Facebook page. Um, for rescuing um, Chinese crested dogs, which obviously don't have much hair at all, um, but she collects all sorts of stuff, um, and she um, has lots of taxidermied animals in her house. Um, and um, yeah, her, I, I just love her. Speaking of hair, her her charity is called No Hairs Ark. Mark, how's that? Oh, Do you yes, like that? Of course, it is. It's perfect um, for Chinese rescuing Chinese crested. So there you go. That's my second news story. It's a very very woolly one, Mark, but um, nevertheless, it's not quite as depressing of your, as your first one or, or perhaps my first news story. Well, my last story has to do with um, uh, the, the Purple Martins, um, and the Purple Martins are um, uh, swallow-like birds that uh, live in the Western United States. Um, and this report um, via the Mother Nature Network, but originally by the Audubon Society, um, just delves a little bit into the nature of their lives. And um, and there's some pretty fascinating facts in this story. Um, the 
title is Why Do the Purple Martins Have Such Big Houses? And um, and they are one of the birds, particularly in the Western United States, that take big advantage of um, of nests that are provided by people. They prefer, um, unlike a lot of the... Um, the martins and swallows, uh, which normally build those mud nests, Brendan. But um, these purple martins uh, prefer to nest in um, hollows, in cavities, in trees. And so um, in America, in Australia, they would, you know, take up the termite-ridden old uh, logs on very aged eucalypts. But in America, they look for trees that um, might have woodpecker holes or uh, spots like that in them. They'll even nest on the ground between um, large boulders. And in the southwest, down in Nevada and Texas, um, they'll, um, they'll use holes in giant cactuses. But just like we were talking about before, um, there's no doubt that uh, those um, many places to nest in trees and the various habitats are being lost at a rate of knots. And so the birds are struggling a little bit. And there is a, you know, uh, um, an, a conservation association which uh, gives lots of assistance and instruction on how to uh, prepare um, purple martin nests. And, and they tend to be colonial nesters. And so they much, much more prefer a uh, series of nest sites that are grouped together, but they have some special characteristics that they really prefer. They they like nests that are um, fairly high, um, that are uh, at least 10 feet above the ground, at least three metres above the ground, um, and they really prefer them to be, you know, well removed from... Um, uh, they don't like them to be attached to trees because they predators uh, can much more easily access them. So they prefer those ones that are, you know, on the top of a pole or um, something like that. They are excellent flyers and they like to swoop into their nest. So an area that's nice and clear around them helps uh, helps attract them to particular nests. They love um, uh, white nests because the white nests tend to stay a little bit cooler in the the hottest parts of the southwest of the US. Um, and so, and the last, um, the one that really grabbed me was the um, the collection of gourds, Brendan, that uh, um, traditional uh, Native Americans have hung out for purple martins for centuries. And now these been these have been adapted to be hung in people's gardens. And the photos of them are really quite impressive. They sort of look like a, they don't look like um, constructed bird nesting sites. They they almost have like a, a cartoon-like appearance to them. Yes, they're um, quite quirky, aren't quirky. they? That's um, the word I was searching for. Quirky. And, yeah, there's never enough gourds in the world, Mark, as, as far as I'm concerned. There's, a, there's always this place for a gourd or a, a squash or, or whatever you want to call them, yeah. So, um, and, yeah, they, they – so why did my, – my question – for this story, Mark, is that um, the Native Americans that hung out these gourds for the purple martins? Um, do you think they were doing that for a particular reason? Were they were they harvesting the the martins, or were they they just liked the martins? What do you think? Well, I don't know the answer for sure, but that's never stopped me from offering an answer. Um, I cannot see <laughs> I cannot see any way that there would be a um like a significant. Uh, return on investment if it was a harvest type arrangement. Um, I, I, 
I genuinely think it's uh, it's much more likely to be, you know, a uh, a recreational activity. And it fascinates me that not just in our, um, you know, you know, my attitude to bird watching. I think it's one of the greatest things that you can do. Um, but it's it's um, the association with um, connecting with birds, feeding birds, watching them. Uh, studying feathers is threaded all the way through human history, and so I think it's um, I I'm sticking my neck out there without any evidence and saying that um, that they weren't harvesting the martins; they were just at, uh, purely out of the pleasure of watching the birds fly and breed. I've got another theory, Mark. <laughs> I love your theories. My theory is they like gourds. <laughs> So they they just like to hang up lots of gourds everywhere, and then uh, by chance happen to attract. Yes, it attracted the birds. Yeah, so they love gourds, but who knows? I'm sure there's. We'll have to do a bit of a search, a Doctor Google or a Mister Google, um, Google Scholar search about um, gourds and martins I'll and do some Native homework. Americans, or perhaps perhaps one of our listeners in in the US, um, or can can enlighten us, Mark, um, about this. Yeah. Um, it will play in my mind this, Mark. You know what I'm like with <laughs> these sorts of things. I will. I, I want the answer. I want the answers. I need to know. I must know. Well, thank you for that, Mark. Um, it was a um, very. Um, I was going to try and do a pun <laughs> with gourds there, but um, it's not coming. I'm so still, yeah, thank I'm you for that. I'm still a bit stunned with your um, vasectomy puns. Oh, well, let me tell you the, um, some, the rest of the story there. I'll tell you just one snippet from it. He, See, he, snippet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You're on fire. That was, an un, that was an unintended part, actually. I only just realised that one. Um, in the waiting room, and this, um, I am not um, lying here, this is the truth, and my dear wife, Annie, will, will back me up. In the waiting room of where you have the vasectomy, the vasectomy clinic, he had a scoreboard, Mark, and it looked like it looked like a scoreboard from a from a a sports stadium, you know, literally like a um, well like AFL football here, up, yeah, like the wood with the gold lettering on it. Yeah, no, well, yeah, it, it, and and it, it it literally listed how many vasectomies he'd done, and at that stage, I think he's well and truly dead by now. But um, it was it was something I'm trying to remember. It was something. Pretty amazing, or something. It was in the thousands. It was between three and five thousand. So it would say vasectomies performed, and it would say three thousand six hundred and twenty-three, for instance. Um, and I was sitting there in the waiting room, waiting to get served, so to speak. And um, I was expecting it to flick to over, over, you know, to 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 to, to number four, and and somebody to to be wheeled out in a wheelchair, um, you know, um, holding their crutch um, um, with a pained look on their, on their face. Um, um, but that doesn't happen because it was a drive-by um, vasectomy clinic, Mark, um, and, and <laughs> there were strict instructions. Like, Again, like this is true. This is true. Yeah, it was. And it, uh, I, I was to be dropped off. We, we'd, we'd go into and um, into the car park with um and he would come in with me would sit in the waiting room um say goodbye to me and she was told specifically um to pick me up 90 minutes later for instance i can't remember it wasn't a very long um period of time and she was told to drive around the back and literally drive through the drive-through region um, which is where you pick up the vasectomy patients 
And I can't read. It was sort of twilight anesthesia, Mark. Um, so I was in the chair, and he put a little drip into me, and that's the last thing I can remember. Um, um, after undressing and putting on one of those hospital gowns, um, I can't remember getting dressed. Apparently, they dressed me, and they popped me into a wheelchair, and then they wheel me out to the back entrance which is where Annie would drive up um, and they'd literally just toss me out of the wheelchair into the car and we'd drive off so um, that was how it was performed and then the number would flip over to the next number <laughs> of how many vasectomies he's done and um, the next patient would be in there so it was quite a bizarre place um, yeah but um, but it was all well and good because it it performed he performed his vasectomy correctly because um, after our two lovely girls um, there was no accidents um, after that mark so let's hope the same um, happens with your with your dear son um, and his vasectomy or his part so he did one side did he of the vasectomy and the I think so his, um, I think that was yeah. the um uh, shown one done one yeah <laughs> excellent he'll be so there you go next week <laughs> yes well you better give me the address of that um, clinic and i'll steer clear of that for the next um, six months um or, or, or recommending um any friends who haven't been given the snip so let's we better jump onto a topic mark before we run out of time here and um i think our topic this week is dental disease in a rabbit's take three so we've already covered in previous previous podcasts the basics of um dental disease and and the the, the the comments that we mentioned about the pathogenesis of it that how it occurs in in rabbits so we're not going to go through that we'll point you to our previous podcast so go to vetgurus.com and just search for rabbits or dental disease and it will pull up all the podcasts that, that mention rabbits and dental disease and then in the second part of dental disease in rabbits um, in a previous podcast we covered the basic extractions, and we sort of touched on some of the more difficult procedures. So I thought this time, Mark, we would go delve a bit deeper, so to speak, and we'll talk about the marsupialisations in in more detail, and attacking those those deep seated um, osteomyelitis infections that we see in those chronic cases, Mark, and and dealing with them. And the reason why I wanted to put this on the on the list today is that I was. Um, dealing with one of these long-term patients this week, Mark, where it's a, almost a palliative care case where it's on long-term injectable penicillin antibiotics to keep things at bay. It has a it has a huge deficit in the maxillary region, Mark, where we'd remove several teeth um, and that area just keeps filling up with food. So it fills up with lots of hay and bits and pieces because this rabbit can still eat despite the fact it's had most of its maxillary or its cheek teeth removed. So I went down the track this week of of placing um, palaxima gel um, into the area, um, which is a, a reverse thermal property gel that I had chloramphenicol um, infused into it by the compounding chemist. Um, and um, I packed the wound or the or the little the pocket there, the sinus or whatever you want to call it, with the palaxima gel because I'm trying to stop gunge and, and just crap getting into that area, but um, trying to um, help sort of close the deficit a little bit. So, do you use that sort of process much, Mark, with the, with the ones where you end up with this big big abscess? Um, or a marsupialized um, one where you've attacked it from the outside, for instance, with the mandibular 
marsupializations. Um, what do you, what's your approach to them? What do you use? Well, well, the the first thing to say is that they are a problem, and um, and I do struggle with those ones. That that um, for example, you do have the large mandibular abscess, maybe um, uh, apical dental abscess, and you um you you debride the abscess bursts out subcutaneously. You explore it. You get down into the the bone of the mandible and. Um, carefully dissect away all the infected bone. You often expose um, several of the teeth, uh, tooth roots um, that will be embedded in the abscess, and they can sometimes be uh, well held in place by the the uh, the bone above. But often they 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 will just slide out into the abscess cavity, leaving quite a significant deficit in the the. Uh, um, the, the buccal surface of the mandible and the gingiva isn't covering it. And you do get um, a connection of fistula entering the mouth and they can be really difficult things to settle down. And the ones that I've had are much the same as yours, that the rabbits seem to cope surprisingly well. Um, they continue to eat and I think the pain tends to arise more from the infection of the bone and removing that um, relieves a significant, but not all the pain associated with the problem. Um, they do seem markedly better once you've performed the marsupialization, but you can definitely get um, uh, food in there. We have used the um, pleuronic, uh, pleuronic or polaxima gels, the thermolabel um, gels that when they're cold when you keep them in the fridge and you have them mixed up with your antibiotic they're a liquid you inject them into tissue which is um, I think you can get different ones for different temp temperatures um, but uh, in rabbits they they go pretty hard and theoretically at least they should provide a a um, biologically inert substrate which leaches antibiotics into the immediate vicinity they've been used for uh, ear canals in some dogs, in dogs that are very difficult to uh, clean and instill antibiotics or other medications into the ear canal. The uh, polaxima gels have been um, uh, promoted as a potential, you know, squirt it in there, leave it for for two weeks and, um, and then gently remove it. Um, I, yes. We have used them, Brendan, and... Um, and I can't tell you I'm happy about them. Um, and it probably, I don't know whether um, there are a number of compounding companies that make them in Australia where we are. And I, I have a sneaking suspicion that the, the company that we used to obtain our gel may not have been as diligent. And this is one of the things about compounding, isn't it? That, um, that you are largely... Uh, you don't have the, the guarantee of quality assurance that comes with dealing with a multinational pharmaceutical company. Um, you are depending on the, the, uh, the particular compounding pharmacist you're working with, and they can vary. Some of them are bloody excellent, um, and some of them are not quite as good. And I think that's what happened to us with the gel was, um, was, uh, would go off in the fridge, so we lost several, um, several right. bits of it, 
um, but we did manage to use some of it before it went off, and um, and the liquid did did not go as hard as I sort of had hoped. It um, definitely turns into um, a gel, but the the particular gel we used was very um, exothermic in that uh, that reaction, and we, I think we had some burn damage to the bone that we put it in, unfortunately. So my experience has been bloody awful, to be honest with you, Brendan. How how, oh, okay. how did how did you go with the temperature changes and the texture of the gel once once it was in? Yeah, I'd, I'd like it to be firmer than what it is. It tends to be almost oh. I was going to say toothpaste um, um, consistency, but it is thicker and firmer than that once it once it's been left in situ. But it's still, I'd prefer it to be much firmer or harder than 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 what it ends up being with in my use anyway. Um, so I have the difficulty of of some of them where I put the gel in there it seems to sit there quite well but I think it just sort of oozes or falls out um, over the next few days or or week or so so um, I'm I'm currently thinking of of using a combination of perhaps using the gel um, first into the cavity and then using something on top of that almost like one of the dental dental um, cavity acrylics or something like that um, to to completely close the uh, close the area that might um, get food and all sorts of um, debris into it um, so um, that's that's my current thoughts with it and I haven't haven't gone the next stage yet because I don't know what and this is where you can advise me mark what sort of dental products you think might um, might be useful if if you have any of those in your clinic that you use for for other species, including dogs and cats, um, I think I need something inert that's fairly rigid um, that we can put across, especially with a case like this. So this is a maxillary um, dental um, deficit um, in a rabbit of, of probably, well, let me think, probably um, at least two centimetres, perhaps three centimetres in length and, and probably at least a centimetre in width. So And, and depth-wise, it's a decent distance as well. So what about um, uh, antibiotic-impregnated polymethylmethacrylate beads? Have you had experience with those? Um, briefly um, with those as far as... Uh, so, um, yeah, so so talking about the different different sort of use of antibiotics into these um into these wounds so if we go back a step yeah what we're the aim of the aim of um putting antibiotics into these regions is to have the antibiotics slowly elute over time um at high concentrations in theory into the surrounding bone and tissues um where we have the osteomyelitis and i think traditionally there's sort of three different techniques and i've certainly used all three mark ones the the gels the pleuronic or the plaxima gels um the Second one is the antibiotic impregnated beads, which is sort of the traditional method of of um, of, of um, putting antibiotics into a into a cavity or certainly into joints. Um, traditionally, is what they've been used for. Um, I think the reason why I, I, I don't use that method is it's a bit of a pain in the backside to to, to make them up. Um, and there's lots of different recipes for it. Um, so I haven't used that for many years, Mark, and it's more that it's the hassle to do it. Um, the third method, which I did use for a couple of years, Mark, and it worked quite well, but it was quite intensive, I suppose, is the best way to describe it, is antibiotic-soaked 
artificial gauze swabs. So getting plastic gauze swabs, which are readily available worldwide. So they look like normal gauze, but they're, they're not cotton, they're, they're plastic. You cut them into strips, you dribble the antibiotic over these gauze strips, Mark, and then you pack the wound with the gauze. I don't know whether you've done that. And I've found, and there's a really, I'm trying to remember the author, there's a really good um retrospective study published and, and it was over 100, 100 cases I think um, probably about five or ten years ago and it was a great great published paper clinical paper um, showing that it works very well and um, I was quite impressed by the paper so I did end up using that technique for probably a year or two um, and it worked very well so you'd pack the wound um, the marsupialized wound um, so it wouldn't work with these ones where you're doing it inside the mouth like the maxillary deficit I was talking about. Um, so primarily for those mandibular ones that we are um, approaching from the outside. Um, you pack it with the antibiotic-soaked gauze um, and you'd replace that. You'd pull it out around about one to seven days to ten, ten days, so one to one and a half weeks. If you left it in much longer than that, I found that those plastic gauze um, would start to adhere to the tissue and it would be a bit of a bugger to try and get them apart. So I'd, so the hassle would be you'd be having to sedate as a minimum that, that rabbit um, in, in every week or so. So um, it's the hassle and the stress of doing that to the rabbit and, and the financial strain, I suppose, um, of doing a procedure every one to two weeks. But but I did find it very effective, Mark, um, um, doing that packing technique. And over time, the marsupialized worm would slowly close over, over perhaps a month or so, um, maybe a bit longer. So have you used that technique? Um, no, I have not, um, and uh, and I have done the same reading that you have, I reckon, and um, and uh, and I have not yet um, done the time to source those uh, those um, swabs. And I suppose part of that reason is that I've had um, good success with the beads, and uh, um, and the the recipe that we do use, as you say, it's uh, um, it's fiddly for a little bit, um, but um, I've had that's probably been the one that I've had the best results with. Um, and uh, yes, so, so what what's your so we we put our antibiotic impregnated whatever into the into the rabbit. What what do you do after that? As far as what what do you do with the hole, the deficit that's still there? Well, that's a very good question. Um, the the ideally you would want to, um, you know, the whole point of marsupialization is to leave as open a wound as possible so it can be debrided and um, and heal in a sorcerized fashion rather than have the skin close over the top and seal in some debris that might be a new focus of infection. Um, but once we do put these things in, um, we do tend to... Um, we, we often don't close the wound completely because we want to be able to flush it or observe it or whatever, but we will probably not leave it as open as we would if we were going to treat it as a, uh, you know, as a perfectly open wound. And so we do have some that we will, um, you know, we'll put um, honey dressings or something like that on a regular basis to and that we'll leave those as completely open wounds. But if we start sticking these things in, um, then we're much, much more likely to at least partially close this, the uh, skin over the top. 
What do you do, Brendan? Well, the best success I've had is basically, yeah, marsupialising it, which obviously means leaving it open and not putting any antibiotic impregnated product in there and getting the owners to flush the wound um, fairly vigorously twice a day and I recommend dilute iodine is what we use because it has a bit of an astringent effect I think Um, and I've had great success over the years probably by far the best success with that technique Mark so so just flushing it um, literally blasting 10 to 20 mils two or three times a day of a one to two percent iodine solution into the marsupialized wound and that doesn't surprise me that you say that because I think it you know we would have some of the same um, similar, if not the same, similar results. But the key thing I find with that is, um, and, I, and I admit freely to making this mistake myself, um, I got so excited by the good results we had with some of that technique that it just became sort of a default thing. Uh, but you really need the right clients. There are clients who literally cannot do it properly and it will it will be a mess and won't heal and the infection won't be resolved and the amount of um, flush uh, that they put in won't be sufficient. The force they use to debride it will not be enough. Um, and so I think yes. the right clients is part of the, the key with that, uh, that particular um, protocol. And I literally have pictures of those marsupialized wounds um, when the day the day they go home um, in the consult room to show the clients um, that um, that this is what your rabbit will be looking like today um, if you leave it with us today um, it'll have a huge hole in the side of its face um, and it can be quite confronting for some clients especially when you're doing the maxillary um, marsupializations and you have a big a big hole below or just in front of the eye there um, so I, I like to show them that the shock and horror photos first and get a bit of a gauge um, once they've once they've um, been picked up off the floor after fainting mark um, and um, realize that yeah this client's keen on, on going ahead with this particular method or know that they're not going to cope and, and have have great difficulty as you mentioned some of them just do not um, they're too tentative with you know I think you need to be fairly well not aggressive but fairly firm with with the way that you flush out these wounds in order for it to to have the maximum chance of, of resolving. What do you think, Mark? <laughs> yes, I think yeah, you were yeah. really quiet for a second there. Um, yes, no, I, 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 I entirely agree. I think that um, uh, I think that because we talk to each other so much and we have a, you know, we're aware of those pictures. We've had our gloved hands in the the face of various rabbits removing the parallel material. We have a complete, completely different attitude to um, a hole in the face and. Um, and those photographs that you talk about, having those in the consult room before you undertake the procedure, um, and 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 I'm sure, um, you know, I often when I'm talking to clients about debriding wounds, um, uh, I'll often talk to them about gently scrubbing the surface of the wound until there is some capillary ooze, and even when I demonstrate it to clients who I think will cope um, with an open wound. Um, it's very rarely the case that um, a member of the general public 
who doesn't have at least some nursing or veterinary experience can do that stuff nearly well enough. Yes. Yes, so I don't think there's any, you know, there's no magical method that works um, 100% of the time as as with most most procedures, Mark, but, you know, I, the keep it simple. Um, protocol and um, often often does the trick, doesn't it? And and that simple muscularization and flushing is is often is often the way to get, go and the way I still go um, with these particular ones. Um, um, I think we should talk a little bit about the, the and I know we have spoken about it before before um, about the palliative care cases, Mark, and and choosing when to stop um, with these severe dental disease cases in rabbits and, and choosing which, which ones to continue with. How, do you want to talk a little bit about how, how you um, chat to the clients about um, the, these cases that are quite complex that you, you know you're just keeping the rabbit going and hopefully pain-free? What, what's your sort of discussion with the client? How does that sort of pan out, Mark, with this? Pan out. Well, the first thing, um, the first point that we make, and we have made this point a number of times before, is that um, is that rabbits have hugely variable. Um, uh, what's the the they 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 definitely feel pain, but they don't necessarily tolerance respond to it because yep. So, but the, the yeah, that's exactly right. They 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 will all behave okay but some will not cope with it they have vastly different uh, tolerances and some of them are to, without being too judgmental um they they're absolute sooks and so even the slightest um uh problem um will lead to them becoming anorexic and developing serious complications. And I struggle um, with those rabbits, with the ones that I know that are going to be very, very sensitive and um, and uh, and not cope with the relatively uh, significant ministrations that uh, both we and their owners are going to have to do to keep them comfortable. Um, so there is a little bit of, um, I suppose, personality judgment to start with, and we do talk to owners about that. And sometimes you cannot know. Um, there's some rabbits that we would have been treating for a while and we'll have a bit of an idea that they're going to cope or not, but there are definitely ones that come to us de novo that, um, that we have to say to the client, we'll do this, but you have to be aware that we can do everything right and a particular rabbit might not cope with uh, that level of um, intervention and and even done properly and with excellent pain control, the dis the inconvenience and discomfort might send that rabbit into um, a terminal spiral of gastrointestinal stasis and and pain and problems. So, briefly, Mark, do you want to mention that the sort of pain <laughs> pain medications that are dispensed or? or or a given, or seem to work in these chronic dental disease cases in rabbits. We love our meloxicam in these cases, Brendan. Um, it uh, we do use it at um, at a significant dose, a different dose to the ones that we use for dogs and cats. Um, but it is an excellent uh, analgesic. Um, where. Uh, particularly around the time of surgery, um, we've gotten in the habit of putting uh, uh, fentanyl patches on our rabbits. We've always been a little bit um, wary of fentanyl because uh, of its 
profound effects on um, uh, gastrointestinal function. And we've already, you know, we're all aware of how rabbits are so dependent on that constant motility. Um, but we notice a significant improvement um, in the outcomes of these major osteomyelitis cases when we use fentanyl patches. Um, is there anything else that you do, Brendan? Yeah, we exactly like you, Mark, increasingly use the fentanyl patches with them and um, I think they're, they're very good um, pain relief in rabbits. Um, meloxicam, um, obviously, that you've already mentioned. The difficulty is, though, that um, a reasonable number of these cases are older rabbits and um, when we do a bit of a workup with them, they may be the ones that have have chronic renal issues um, going on there. So it's a bit of a bit of a toss-up, isn't it, deciding, you know, do we just keep it on the pain relief and run that increased risk or do we crank down the meloxicam? Um, we, if I'm going to throw something else into the mix with them, I do find some of the rabbits respond reasonably well um, anecdotally to to tramadol mark and i know it's a bit of a hit and miss with the old tramadol um, some rabbits that we put on potentially high doses of tramadol and i'm talking about 20 plus milligrams per kilogram um, does not seem to um, do anything at all and but we do have some rabbits that are on a, a much lower dose than that that do seem to respond to um, the tramadol um, when they're on other medications they seem to be in 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 considerable pain and we pop them on the tramadol um so a bit of tramadol and and the other one that i'm starting to throw in the mix uh, recently mark or consider is gabapentin oh, brendan gabapentin gabapentin is one of my um uh, we'll we'll have to have a longer talk about gabapentin in a future podcast but oh crikey's my soapbox is creaking as i climb up on it already Excellent. Um, I'm looking forward to that, Mark. It will be good. So we can perhaps in um, one of the near future podcasts we will talk about analgesia. Now, I know you're trying to wind this up quickly, but you've got to answer one last question for me. That is um, my experience with the tramadol tastes foul. Um, and I struggle. Do you, do, do you flavor the tramadol to you use the liquid one? Yes, and and the answer is sometimes yes, sometimes no. So we offer um, the flavouring to the clients. Some clients do not want it flavoured. We have a little in-house flavouring system, um, so we can flavour it. Typically, with the rabbits, the flavour that we most commonly have requested of the flavours that we have would be apple um, for them, and I think the other flavour that's reasonably popular supposedly with the rabbits is watermelon mark they're the two flavors that we we flavor them but yes it's certainly a, a bitter a bitter compound do you do you get them compounded or flavored and um, we do get them we tend to get them compounded when we use tramadol and um when we use the, the um, drops the the uh, commercial the um standard preparation the 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 bitterness seems to make it almost impossible to administer Yes, and do you think it works or not? Um, I do. I think I am a bit of a tramadol aficionado. I know there's a lot of controversy, particularly in human medicine, about how effective an analgesic it is. I, I'm a great with reptiles. I think it's um, uh, it, I, you, I will need a lot of convincing to tell me that it doesn't actually work. I'm, I'm very confident that it's doing the job there, um, and I think 
well, the jury's still out in other in other species, but I definitely use it in rabbits for sure. Excellent. Excellent. Let me turn myself off mute, as usually I got caught out there, Mark. And, well, I think it's time to say um, goodbye from Hoodoo, from the guru, guru, from the gurus, and uh, we will talk to you all next week.